You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's just such an amazing gift that we get to gather together like this to worship our Lord and Savior in unity. Amen? Especially because that's what we're all about here at the gate, coming together to proclaim the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's our passion. That's our, our goal. That's our desire. And on that end, I'm excited to announce that today we're going to be starting a new sermon series through the book of Colossians. And, and this is basically what it's all about, proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about how we're saved in him, blessed in him, unified in him, empowered in him, eternally loved in him, satisfied in him, wise in him, purposeful in him, and ultimately that we are complete in him. We are complete in Christ. And so we're going to be learning what that means and and how it changes the way that we live and breathe. Uh, So let's get started. If you want to turn with me to Colossians 1, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 8. Colossians 1, 1 to 8. Let's read. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So normally when, when, when we're starting out a new sermon series in a, in a book of the Bible, I like to give a visual of the city uh, that the book takes place in so that we can kind of see what it's like to, to live in their shoes or be in their shoes. But um, unfortunately, the location of, of this city, Colossae, um, where it used to be, it hasn't actually been excavated yet and, and is, is just this big field with this big mound where maybe a temple used to be or something like that. But I'm going to show it to you anyway, if you can even see it. We need to put a new bulb on our projector. And if, if there's any volunteers to help me put up the scaffolding, we have to get up there. So uh, that's one of the reasons I showed that picture, just to, you know, inspire you. <laughs> um, but seriously, it's just, like, it's just this big mound. So yeah, well, that's... That's where they used to live. There's another picture that I have, if you want to show that one. So there's a little bit of ruin, so it shows there's a little bit of evidence that, that uh, humans live there. But 
there's not much going on there, though I did recently read that, that some archaeologists are going to start excavating that area, which is exciting for me. I don't know if it's exciting for you, but it's exciting for me, and I'm excited to, to uh, find out what they uncover in the next couple of years. Um, anyways, the, the reason that this city is just a big field now, is non-existent, uh, there's, there's multiple reasons, but there's, there's two really big reasons, and I want to highlight them for you just so we can kind of get an idea of, of what it was like to live in Colossae. So the first is that while Colossae used to be a, a prominent agricultural city for the Greeks and Persians, it, it had become less so in the time of Roman rule because its neighboring cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, had become more economically and strategically important, so much so that the ancient Persian road that used to go to Colossae, they rerouted it to Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so they were no longer on the main highway. And we know what happens to cities that are no longer on a main highway. They start to shrink and die. So it wasn't a very significant city anymore. Um, but yet... Paul still feels it's important to write to these people, right? They were still significant to God. Um, Another reason that it lies in ruins today is because shortly after this letter was received, the whole area of of Asia Minor, which is now known as uh, southeastern Turkey, it's a country of Turkey, it was ravaged by this huge earthquake, and, and it destroyed a bunch of the cities in that area. And while the other cities were probably rebuilt, it's likely that Colossae wasn't, or not really to the same glory that it used to be, if it was. Which also means that it's likely that the very Christians in Colossae who read this letter would have moved elsewhere in the region and therefore brought that gospel message of Jesus' saving grace with them, advancing the kingdom of God wherever they ended up. And and it's that that proclamation of the gospel being spread throughout the world, which which Paul also rejoices about in this introduction. And, And... and it's almost as if he was preparing them to, to go forth and proclaim it without, without even knowing it. Though he also rejoices in the fact that they'd already been spreading it throughout their own city at that time as well, which, which, also, which also proved their own faith. So, um, speaking of um, and the Apostle Paul, though, most scholars agree that he, along with Timothy, were the senders of this letter, uh, which we just read in the first couple of verses of the passage. Um, in, in, as, as we've learned before, in, in those days, people would write who they were as the first line. Like, we write it at the end of a letter. We say, best regards, Greg, or whatever, right? But they would write it at the first, the first thing. They would say, Paul, an apostle, along with Timothy, right? That's what he wrote. So they were the centers of the letter. And Timothy may have actually penned it while Paul dictated it, but that's unknown. That's, that's only a guess, but definitely this is, these are Paul's words. Um, and we can also infer that while Paul wrote it, he was currently in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel. And we can also infer that he actually didn't even know the people that he was writing to. He had not, never actually met this group of believers since he'd likely never been to Colossae himself. Instead, we can read that he was inspired to write them only after he'd heard a report about them from his friend and fellow evangelist, Epaphras, who had come to visit and minister to him in prison. And we don't know much about this Epaphras guy, or if I'm even saying his name right, but he was probably 
one of Paul's converts in Ephesus who more than likely went east from there to evangelize in Laodicea and Colossae and was most likely paramount in making disciples and starting churches there. And, and this is an encouragement and crucial reminder for each of us that, that we don't have to be an apostle or a pastor to go and, and proclaim the gospel and make disciples, right? In fact, we should all strive to be more like Epiphras this year. Amen? Yeah? Good. Anyways, it, it seems that, that, that while he was visiting Paul, he, he reported to him that while things were mostly going well in Colossae, that, that they'd also recently been struggling with some questionable teaching or philosophies that were being peddled among them or among that church. Nothing new, right? Every, every church in every generation is tempted and, and struggles with new philosophies and, and whatnot that claim to complement Scripture or interpret Jesus' teaching in a new way or whatever, right? Just, just as we do today as well. And, but for them, we have to understand that one of the, one of the most constant and major temptations that, that these believers were facing in their culture, just like most of the Greco-Roman societies back in the first century, was the, the accepted practice of syncretism. Syncretism. We've heard that word before, right? Syncretism. And this is when many different philosophies, religions, gods, idols, and their corresponding religious practices would be all mixed together in, in this big pot as one would see fit. Most Greco-Roman citizens held on to this idea that one god was, was definitely not enough to satisfy your needs and, and desires, which meant that, that to maximize one's desired results and in order to cover all of your, your bases, one needed to, to mix and match and, and worship and pray to a bunch of gods and hold on to, a, to multiple philosophical or ideological beliefs all at the same time just in case one of them was better than the other or would provide something more than the other one would, right? And Christianity then, along with Judaism, was often viewed as incredibly weird and, and even offensive to most citizens simply because they confessed to worshiping and believing in only one God. And they said there's only one way. Does that sound familiar? Not, nothing much has changed, right? It's, it's no surprise then, really, that, that there seems to have been some some alternate syncretistic or religious ideologies that had, that had come back around into their community, which might have caused them to think that while this new God named Jesus seemed great, maybe, maybe he wasn't enough to completely satisfy or save them, that simply believing in him maybe wasn't quite sufficient to please God. So in addition to following him, maybe, maybe they also needed to supplement their faith or, or Christianity by, by adopting alternative religions or regulations or human traditions or philosophies and other objects of worship as well. And, and so this is one of the primary reasons the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in the city of Colossae, to remind them and encourage them that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, they don't need any other gods or philosophies or customs because they're already complete in Christ. They're already complete in Christ. My wife, Audrey, and I, we, we often get a good chuckle from our, our neighbors who live across the alley from us. Uh, 
Because every couple of months, we have a weird sense of humor. Every couple of months, it seems they, they keep adding more and more things to their backyard. Like, it's, it just never ends. And, and so sometimes we sit out on our, jack, our deck, sipping our coffee, and, and we just joke about what they might add next. We try to guess. For example, when we first moved in a, a few years ago, they, they had a hot tub and a barbecue in their backyard. Fine. That's nice. But then a couple of months after that, suddenly they had a trampoline. Okay. Fair enough. And then a couple of months after that, they had an outdoor TV mounted on their deck. I didn't even know that was a thing. And, 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 then, and then they brought in new deck furniture, and then they built a permanent awning for their deck, and, and they put these screens on it, and then they, and then they installed a swimming pool, and then, and then they bought a, a camping trailer. And, and by this time, their backyard and their driveway was just jam-packed full of stuff. They even had to cut down a tree to fit all of it in. And we can see them moving through their backyard, you know, <laughs> like that. But... And, and so we thought, surely, they, you know, they can't add any more stuff to their backyard. But sure enough, earlier this summer, they had, in, had solar panels installed. And then just recently, they put up a basketball net. And, and it's, just, it's just never ending. They just keep adding more and more things. And, and I'm probably forgetting some stuff, but you get the gist, right? It, it's like this mini amusement park back there. And, and the truth is that, that well, we, we honestly don't know why... What's truly motivating them to, to continue adding all of this stuff to their yard? The likelihood is, is that, like most Westerners, it's probably because, generally speaking, <clears throat> we have this insatiable appetite, right, in which we never feel like we have enough to satisfy us or entertain us. And so we, we're always left with wanting more. More things, more entertainment, more money. The, the, the plethora of, of research done on happiness and, and contentment agrees that most of us find it difficult to remain content or thankful for what we have or, or where we're at in life, no matter what the level of our wealth or social status is. Rich people feel the same as poor people. The reason is that a lack of thankfulness leads to forgetfulness. Right? A lack of thankfulness leads to forgetfulness for all the good things that we don't actually have. And then that can lead to feelings of ingratitude, discontentment, envy, or, or unhappiness, which then causes us to think that if we just had one more thing, or just a little bit more money, or, 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 or a certain type of relationship, or that specific toy, or spiritual experience, or, or a better job, or easier circumstances, or one more fun thing in our backyard or whatever else it is, then we'll finally be happy or satisfied. But yet, what we actually find is that no matter how much more we, we consume or collect or experience, satisfaction never comes in that form. Once the initial thrill or moment has passed, we find that we're still not complete. And so, and so we move on to the next thing. But the truth is that we can be complete. We can be satisfied. But we'll never find it in, in worldly things, pleasures, or, or philosophies. And this is the message that, that Paul's speaking to the Colossian church. He's telling them, you already are complete. You don't need anything else. You have Jesus. 
And though this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago, sometime around 60 AD, I'd argue that, that we as Christians face the same temptations today. We're, we're, we're constantly pressured to supplement our Christianity and our faith with worldly things and idols and ideologies, whether it's human traditions, the American dream, political leanings, New Age philosophy, money and fame, sex, keeping up with the Joneses, career success, the list goes on. But Paul's coming in with his letter to say, don't believe it. Don't forget the word of truth that you heard and believe for your salvation. Don't forget that Jesus alone is sufficient to justify you and give you peace with God and give you the hope of eternal life. That Jesus alone, because of the grace of God, has already made you complete in heart and soul and all of life. And therefore, nothing needs to be added to his work or to what he's already freely given us. It's, it's this incredibly powerful and, and glorious truth of Christ's sufficiency and completeness, which he brings up frequently throughout the letter, including in the beginning of his introduction and greetings to them, which we just read. And again, in order to encourage them and remind them that they've already been given everything they need. In fact, every time he writes that phrase, in Christ... That's what he's referring to. He's referring to the fact that Christ fulfills, sanctifies, and permeates every area of our life. To be in Christ is to be complete because he's all and in all. And, and the wonderful thing for Paul is that according to Epaphras' report about them, the evidence of Christ permeating every area of their lives was, well, evident which is why he writes to them with joy, saying that whenever he prays for them, he gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to God because, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and for their love for one another and the spirit which springs from the hope of the gospel that they heard and believed by God's grace, which they're now proclaiming to others and, and bearing fruit. So what Paul's listing there are the, are the characteristics of a genuine, spirit-filled Christian community. The same three that he lists in 1 Corinthians as well. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. With their, with their focus on the sure hope of eternal life in Christ, they're able to live by faith according to Jesus' teaching, which is made evident by both their tangible love for one another and their desire to spread the message of the gospel to others in the same way that Epaphras had brought the word of truth to them. This is, this is another con convicting and challenging reminder for us concerning who we're also called to be and what we're supposed to look like as the church, living in faith, hope, and love. It's, it's the foundation of Paul's thanksgiving for them. It's the evidence that Christ is moving in them. And it's also why he so comfortably calls them brothers and sisters, right? It's evident that they're living for Jesus, and that's what unites them together as the family of God. But what's interesting as well uh, is that in starting his letter this way, he's, he's not only encouraging, encouraging them right off the bat uh, or reminding them of what they've been given or who they are in Christ, he's also modeling for them the attitude they need to have in this life so that they don't forget it and, and become drawn in or, or convinced by something else. What he's modeling for them, in, even in this introduction, is, is the importance of having an attitude of thanksgiving. The importance of having an attitude of thanksgiving. Seven more times in the letter, 
I think it's seven, it might be more. Paul will encourage them to be thankful and to give thanks to God. Why? Because as I implied earlier, we as humans are prone to forget how much we truly have. And our forgetfulness can lead us to feeling that discontentment or dissatisfied or discouraged, which then leads us to desire to go chasing off after other things. Right? And, while, and while I wish it wasn't so, let's be honest, like, like I mentioned earlier, this happens to us as believers all the time. We, we're, we're prone to forget how amazing the gospel is, how amazing it is that God, by his grace, rescued us from our sin and bondage to hell by sending Jesus Christ to pay the full weight and penalty for our sins through his death on the cross so that in the power of his resurrection, we could have peace with God and be adopted into his eternal kingdom. We, we tend to forget how awesome and amazing that is. And sadly, then in our forgetfulness, all of a sudden we find ourselves pursuing or, or worshiping at the feet of, of worldly idols like money or status or sex or substances or, or career success. Or, or we find ourselves dabbling in other philosophies or worldviews. Or maybe we find ourselves be becoming angry or bitter at God because our focus has, has shifted to dwelling on our circumstances or, or in being consumed by all the things that we don't have rather than what we've already been given. And in some cases, discontentment can even, can even lead us to struggle with depression and anxiety or identity issues. Simply put, when we neglect to give thanks, we forget what God has done and who he is. And we forget that he's already given us everything that we need in this life and the next through Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, so we start to look elsewhere or become disgruntled at God with our lives. But on the flip side, whenever we choose to give thanks to God, Whenever we choose to give thanks to God, what we're doing is we're also reminding our heart and our mind and our soul that there's so much to be grateful for and that in Christ we lack nothing. Cultivating gratitude directed towards God the Father helps us remember who God is, who we are in Christ, and what he's given us. Cultivating gratitude directed towards God the Father helps us remember who God is, who we are in Christ, and what he's given us. What I'm saying, it's, it's the cure for discontentment. It's the cure for our anxiety and for bitterness, for hopelessness and dissatisfaction. It also removes any room for worrying or, or complaining because with our focus on God, we're no longer dwelling solely on our circumstances or on the things we want, but on him. And, and not that we, we, we ignore our circumstances, just sweep our problems or anxieties under the rug. Not at all. I, I mean, the Apostle Paul is about to address some serious issues with the Colossians. But he begins with thanksgiving toward God so that he can address these issues with a proper Christ-centered perspective. Acknowledging that God is in control. 
And furthermore, an attitude of thanksgiving toward God also re, towards God also removes any room for entitlement, for, for pride or envy as we humbly acknowledge that everything we've been given is a free gift from him and isn't based on anything we deserve or anything we've done to get it, right? Which also then frees us to love others selflessly and rejoice with others' successes. Ultimately, what I'm saying is that if, if, if you're feeling low, is it, if you're feeling depressed, if, if you find that, that you're constantly impatient or unable to rejoice with others, if, if you find you're always grumbling or, or in a bad mood or unsatisfied with your life or complaining about your job or whatever else, if, if, if you find you're often critical or judgmental, if, if you're constantly stressed out or worried or if you're chasing, constantly chasing after the next big thing or the next rush, Come to God in prayer. Repent, which means turn towards God. And then give thanks. Bring to mind what what he's done for you and who you are in Christ, a child of God. And as you do, you'll enter into the rest and satisfaction of Christ. And you'll find your attitude and your outlook on life begin to shift towards one of, one of contentment and joy. And you'll also find with your eyes on Jesus that you'll be more hopeful, more faithful, and more loving. Of course, on a, on a basic level, studies have recently shown that those who spend time each day giving, for thank, giving thanks for what they have, or even as little as remembering to give thanks for two or three things in their life, are much more happy and content in, in their lives and, and mental well-being. And an article from Harvard University recently posted this. It said, in positive psychology research, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. So simply put, being, being grateful improves your life immensely. God designed us this way. God designed us this way. And as Christians, we have so much to be thankful for, more than anyone else. We, we have forgiveness of sins. We have hope in eternal life. We have the word of God at our fingertips. We're adopted into the kingdom of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We belong to a wonderful church community, which I myself am incredibly thankful for. And of course, we have the fullness of God given to us freely in the person and work of Jesus Christ who knows us and loves us. He's our eternal satisfaction. He's our hope. He's our redemption. He's our righteousness. He's our peace. He's our wisdom. He's our life. He's our everything. We're complete in Jesus. We, we don't need to add anything to him or to his work. It's finished. And, and therefore, he, he's all we'll ever need. He supplies our every need. How can we not be thankful? How can we not live our lives in thanksgiving? Of course, yes, we also need practical things like clothes and, and food and, and, all, and all those things as well. But as Jesus said, when we seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things shall be added unto us. When we seek Jesus first, when we find contentment and satisfaction in Jesus first, He'll guide us and, and empower us and provide a way for us to obtain our daily bread. Bottom line, though, is that Jesus is all and in all. 
But again, in order to not forget this, we must be willing to, as, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. And so again, what we'll find throughout this sermon series is that the Apostle Paul will be continuously teaching the Colossians this. He reminds them over and over to be thankful in prayer for what they've given by God the Father, to be thankful for their salvation in Jesus, to be thankful for the way the Holy Spirit is working in them to advance the gospel, to be thankful for the way they've obviously and gloriously been transformed in faith, hope, and love. Ultimately, to give thanks to God for Jesus Christ precisely so that they don't forget him and so that they live for him instead of ending up getting swept away by worldly ideologies or false teachings or traditions that might sound good or, or, or might sound like they're helpful, but they only lead to futility and, and destruction and emptiness. Ultimately, he wants them to remember to, and to trust in the truth that Jesus is all they need and more. He's more than enough. As uh, our Scott Payson, Daniel Aiken write, Paul begins his letter to the Colossians by welcoming the young church to the family of faith. He greets them with joy and enthusiastically reassures them of their irrevocable status as, and as members of God's beloved people. In doing so, he also reminds them of the blessings, privileges, and responsibilities they have inherited. Paul's prayerful introduction assures us that we as modern Christ followers are also recipients of these same glorious truths. As members of God's family, we have reasons to be glad, reasons to be grateful, and reasons to be going. So again, by giving thanks to God for their faith, hope, and love here, Paul's not only encouraging them and, and reminding them who they are in Christ, but he's purposefully also modeling to them the importance of having that attitude of thanksgiving himself. And, and let's not forget, Paul's sitting in a first century Roman prison while he's writing this letter. So some of us might be saying, well, yeah, it's easy for you to give thanks. What about such and such? My life is terrible. It's easy for you to give. Paul's sitting and rotting in a first century Roman prison. That's worse than your life. And what I'm saying is, is that if anyone has a right to complain or feel unsatisfied or ungrateful in that moment, it's Paul. But yet again, his attitude is one of thanksgiving, giving glory to God for hearing about the tangible evidence in the believers at Colossae for the very thing that put him in prison, the preaching of the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. His Christ-glorifying outlook enabled him to, to understand his situation through the lens of God's goodness and grace, and it changed his perspective. In fact, while rotting in the same prison, this is what he writes to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? His, his continual remembrance of Jesus and, and enables him to, to abound, to be content in all things. Because Jesus is all he needs. 
And so he models this, this attitude of, of gratefulness and thanksgiving, which, which he'll later lay out plainly for the Colossians in, in 3.17, when he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And again, he doesn't want them to just give thanks so that, so that they, they feel happy all the time. We're, we're not going to always feel happy all the time. We, we go through difficult situations in life, Right? But he wants them to continually give thanks so that they're continually giving God the glory and at the same time reminding themselves of all they've inherited as believers in Jesus Christ so that they can remain steadfast in their faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. The will of God is for us to continually every moment of the day, without ceasing, have a life of thanksgiving. It's it's not a a once-a-year event when we stuff our face with with turkey and and sit back for a brief moment and reminisce about how good we have it, right? Thanksgiving is a lifestyle. It helps us remember to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, on the hope we have in him, which will keep us steadfast in our faith and content in whatever situation we find ourselves in, ready to love others and proclaim the gospel. And the Bible reminds us of this over and over again. Let me read a couple of verses. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And Psalm 107, 8 to 9 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So so in conclusion then, I just want to say that as we begin this new season as, as a church and, and even as we, we try to navigate together through this crazy culture that we live in right now, one that I'd argue is, is steeped in discontentment and entitlement and bitterness and unhappiness, where, where, where a lot of people seem upset and whiny and, and offended by so many things, especially in this age of social media. Let's choose instead to give thanks. Let's choose instead to give thanks before God in all things, in all circumstances. Whenever we pray, let's do so with thanksgiving in our hearts through Jesus Christ. Whenever we worship or or dig into our Bibles, let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. Whenever we come to God with our our issues or, or our anxieties, let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. Whenever we journal or reflect on our day, let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. Whenever we hang out with our friends or or go to work or school or church, let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. Whenever we wake up or eat a meal or go to bed, let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. And whenever we face trials or difficult seasons in life, Let's do so with thanksgiving for him in our hearts. Always keeping in remembrance the word of truth that God loves us and sent his son to save us and adopt us into his kingdom to make us complete in Christ so we can abound in faith, 
hope, and love. And when we do this, we'll carry with us a joy and satisfaction that nothing else and no one else could ever replace or add to or ever take away.